For many people, the most difficult part of church life is the life of the church. We seem rarely, if we're honest, to actually live up to our advertising. We're called the body of Christ, the pillar and foundation of the truth, the household of God. But then you get onto a committee. And, well, it feels a little bit like what they say about laws and sausages. It's better not to know how they're made. It's not an uh, original or new experience, this. Actually, um, the great C.S. Lewis experienced something a bit like this when he started to get to know church life himself and his own spiritual journey. He confessed that uh, in the early days he found all sorts of things disappointing, the hymns even, which, of course, for many of us are much loved. But for Lewis, who was a master of poetry, or in his own consideration at that time was... He uh, judged that uh, the hymns were third-rate poetry set to second-rate music. And as only an Oxford professor could, he found himself sneering at the lower-class intellectual poverty of the people sitting near him in church. In fact, uh, one day he noticed there was an old lady with elastic-sided boots praying next to him. And he sneered internally inside. Later on, he came to realize that that diminutive old lady was actually a prayer warrior, a spiritual giant. And he said he realized he was not fit to lace up those elastic-sided boots. What was it that changed his attitude? Well, no doubt, many things, but prominent among them was the Bible. You see, the Bible is very real about us all. It uh, does not pretend that we are more than we really are. It gives a true diagnosis of our often less than excellent spiritual situation. But at the same time, the Bible also provides a reliable spiritual remedy. And for us then to really enter into the reliability of the Bible in the context of the community of the church, it requires first an understanding of this reality and then second an appropriation of the remedy. So first, uh, reality. I hope you do have your Bibles open in front of you or that worship folder at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 to 17. Uh, it comes towards the end of uh, two uh, letters written by Paul to his protege Timothy uh, in Ephesus. Um, the second one was written actually as, jail, uh, as Paul is facing jail, uh, is in jail and is facing uh, imminent execution, in fact. All of that means that as Paul writes, there is uh, hanging over him and therefore his protege Timothy, the reality that soon Timothy will have to shepherd the church in Ephesus himself without the great Paul looking over his shoulder and telling him what to do. 
And so how is Timothy to do this? Well, first, throughout these letters, uh, Paul gives him this real diagnosis of the church at Ephesus, which was an excellent church, and yet had some issues. Now, again, if you do have a Bible open, or you can crane your neck over to see your neighbors, uh, turn with me to the beginning of 1 Timothy chapter 1, and you'll see how Paul diagnoses uh, what's going on. Verses 3 and 4. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so uh, Timothy is in Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, uh, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So, what's the diagnosis? Well, the diagnosis, according to the great apostle Paul, is in the church at Ephesus, this beachhead to reach the whole of uh, uh, what the Roman Empire called uh, Asia. There were in that church, as Paul had predicted when he gave his farewell to the elders at Ephesus, within their own number, teachers who were rising up, um, proclaiming different, or what we would call false doctrine, the wrong message. And specifically, Paul's particularly concerned about a sort of growing enthusiasm for what he calls myths and uh, endless genealogies. Now, what on earth can make anyone interested in endless genealogies? I've read a few of them in the Old Testament. They never particularly interested me. I'm not sure you can confess that as a pastor, but there you go. It seems as if this is what was going on. Influenced by the uh, fantastical myths of Greek culture, um, teachers were encouraging uh, young Christians that uh, if they really wanted to grow spiritually, they must have a, a mystical buzz, some kind of lightning bolt experience. And they were saying, influenced by the Judaism that uh, they had come out of, some of them, well, in addition to this mystical buzz, you must uh, obey every part of the Old Testament law, including being circumcised and eating only certain foods, you know, being kosher. And if you can trace your genetic lineage, your family tree, to honorable Jewish Old Testament origins, well, so much the better, you're really among the elite. Myths and genealogies. Uh, to put it in contemporary terms, we might say what they were uh, propounding was that it was much more important who your great-grandfather was and his spiritual state, or whether right now you had had a sort of mystical buzz, a lightning bolt, than actually um, what you uh, believed, what your faith was uh, about God, rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Well, as uh, these things do, despite um, Timothy's best attention, things have got a little bit worse by 2 Timothy. So if you turn to 2 Timothy 2, verse 17 and 18, uh, you'll see there that Paul is describing this teaching now as like gangrene. It's spreading. And in particular, Hymenaeus and Philetus, he says, have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. Now, what on earth can that mean? How can someone say the resurrection has already happened? I mean, clearly it hasn't. Well, these two false teachers, um, Hymenaeus and Philetus, were probably promoting what theologians today technically call, you ready, 
over-realized eschatology. What does that mean? Well, what it means is they were saying the resurrection has already happened in the sense that you God's people can have all God's blessings now. You don't need to wait until you get to heaven. No, 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 no. We just have enough faith. Your best life now, someone might say. And as is always the case, when uh, wrong ideas begin to spread, it leads to um, practical wrong living. So if you look down at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, Paul has this great list of a sort of arrogant, selfish materialism. I won't read it all out. It's so depressing, but here's some of it. Uh, people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, etc. The point that Paul is making to Timothy is, look, if you see people living in a morally um, decadent way, Don't think the fix to that is just moral reformation, just rules. No, the fix is you've got to go back to the diagnosis. It's a wrong idea, a wrong message, false teaching. That's true in our culture and it's true in churches when they go wrong. Some wrong idea has taken hold and it's spreading like gangrene and now it's affecting how people live. People behave badly because they believe badly, and they believe badly because they're believing something that has been badly taught. Now, of course, those of us who are teachers will realize that sometimes you can teach the right thing and people will get the wrong end of the stick. Um, That is, of course, the case. But here, they were being taught badly, and some of them were believing badly, too. And uh, typical symptoms, therefore, of false teaching were taking place. Reliance on mysticism, your parents' belief, and what they believe rather than what you believe, and this kind of materialism, lovers of money. We see it all over the place today, don't we? Tribalism. This is why our culture is so split. We have no central doctrine about God that's holding us together, so we just align around tribal loyalties. Mysticism, because there's no central doctrine of God holding us together. All we have left is a sort of buzz and experience that we seek because we are made for something, some transcendent experience, and therefore, well, we try to find it. Materialism. We've got to fill the vacuum inside somehow. And um, as one wonderful country song, I can't say I love country and western music my personally which probably doesn't surprise you but there's one wonderful country and western song which I think is so funny which says um, see if I can get it right money cannot buy you love but it can buy you a boat (laughs) now this is all not very good news of course (laughs) But then Paul actually encourages Timothy, even if everything else goes wrong. Look at verse 8 of chapter 3. He says, just as Jans and Jambres oppose Moses, so these men also oppose the truth, etc. But they will not get very far, verse 9. 
Why? Because their folly will be plain to all. In other words, it's so ridiculous. Uh, John's and Jean Bray's were sort of um, uh, the names given to the magicians in Moses' court who opposed Moses. Uh, they were known by these names in uh, Paul's time. And what Paul's saying to Timothy is, look, don't worry your head about whether everyone's always going to agree with you. People will not always agree with you. But even if they do not, this false teaching is so absurd that just like those ridiculous magicians in Pharaoh's court seem to now to us to be absurd, so their teaching will in time come to be seen to be ridiculous. It will do damage, but in the end it will be seen to be ridiculous. Uh, many of you only know me from my ministry here at College Church, which is a healthy and well-resourced church of lots of godly leaders and all the rest. But my first senior pastorate, some of you will realize, was a church that started with only 20 people, 10 of whom were from one family, so really it was 20. Um, had a rented building only, no money to speak of, and actually a long history of chewing up pastors and spitting them out. It was quite the attractive proposition for a young pastor. I was only 21, uh, 28 when we started as a senior pastor. We were called by God, and so we waded in with good cheer. The church, by God's grace, grew to pack out in semester time. A large building soon complete, completely paid off next to uh, the university there. But in the very early days, all sorts of this kind of nonsense was happening. For instance, there was a certain individual who felt a possessive association to the key to the sound system. The controls to the microphones were in a locked cabinet, and only he had the key. So every Sunday I would arrive, um, set up all the musical um, stuff uh, necessary, uh, print off all the worship folders at uh, the um, print shop at the time called Kinko's. It's now gone out of business. Um, uh, Not for lack of our business, I can tell you. We used it a lot. Um, Put out the sign in front of the building because it was a rented uh, auditorium. By the time I get up to preach, I've had a good workout and didn't need to go to the gym for a few days. Uh, The service would begin. And nine times out of ten, this man who had the key to the sound system would not be there. He simply refused reliably to get out of bed in time for the start of the church. So you just have to imagine, there was I, you know, as a young man, trying to construct a ministry that would be culturally relevant and communicate to postmodern 20-year-old students. And the man was sort of waltz in about 15 minutes late and kind of ostentatiously unlock the sound cabinet and bring down the microphones to the front. Of course, what was going on in his head was, you know, all this worship stuff isn't that important. What's really important is sort of uh, social care and all sorts of other things that he prioritized. Now, I didn't want to get into a head-to-head fight around unlocking a sound cabinet of all ridiculous things. And there was just no way to either get the key or get him to get out of bed on time. I mean, I could have you know, gone to physical violence, but I didn't think that would go down well as a pastor. So eventually, after every kind of persuasion I attempted, after he had promised to be there on time and not been on there on time, after I had confronted him about it and had good conversations about it, eventually, this is what I did. There was a young man who had grown up in the church. And I asked this other man to mentor him in the sound cabinet ministry. (laughs) 
Well, a few weeks later, the young man was allowed the key. I asked him quickly to make a copy. <laughs> and thereafter, we could start the service with the microphones turned on. Now, multiply that by about 50,000, and I'm afraid you will have a sense of the sort of nonsense that goes on in many dysfunctional churches. No wonder we're not reaching the lost. We're trying to figure out how to unlock the sound cabinet. And you think, well, the, you know, the body of Christ, household of God, yeah, come on. My father, who was a retired school teacher and lay Christian leader for many years, when I would tell him about some of this stuff in those early days, he would just say to me over and over again, you know, Josh, it sounds rather like the New Testament, which it is. The Bible offers a real diagnosis. But it doesn't leave it there. It also gives us a reliable remedy. So now, in this passage, Second Timothy, having given you the context, all this going on in Ephesus, all these false teaching and wrong ideas happening, Paul tells Timothy... Verse 10, you, however, and then again verse 14, but as for you. Now that phrase, you, however, and then again, but as for you, is actually exactly the same phrase in both places in the original Greek. So it is repeated deliberately to indicate a contrast that Paul wants Timothy to get. In other words, they are like that. But you, however, are to be like this. Well, what is he to be like? Look at verse 14. This is the one command, and I'll read it and following, so you get a sense of what Paul is telling Timothy to do. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. For all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work, even to pastor a church like the church in Ephesus, Timothy. And so with that command to continue in the Bible, Paul now begins chapter 4 with his very famous charge. You probably know it well, some of you. He says to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing, he's coming back. You know, I may be going, Timothy, but Jesus is coming back. And his kingdom, that is, he's in charge. This is the charge. He's preached the word. And so, in other words, what uh, Paul is saying to Timothy, as I just briefly tried to exposit some passages around our core passage this morning. What Paul is saying to Timothy is there is a reliable remedy. Yes, the Bible's real about the diagnosis of false teaching as it takes place in churches, as it affects cultures, it spreads like gangrene, and it affects how people actually live. That is true, Timothy, but don't be discouraged. For we have the word of God. And it is sufficient and powerful 
And you, Timothy, you are the man of God. That's a very deliberate phrase. It's drawn from the Old Testament, referring to the great prophets of the past, like Elijah and Isaiah. Paul's saying to Timothy, you are the man of God. Plus, you have the word of God. And so the remedy is the word of God preached by the man of God. Of course, that isn't just for pastors. It's for all of us. It's for all our ministries. If you are in a small group right now and you're thinking to yourself, we seem to have got along very well in the past, but now we are not getting along so well. I have a very simple solution to you, for you. Study the Bible more. And same with your marriage. Uh, perhaps you're saying to yourself, you know, I loved that woman and we got married and we seemed to get along so well for about 10, 15 years and now we, we hardly talk. Well, I have a very simple solution for you. Read the Bible every evening. Rochelle and I, ever since we got married, have made a commitment to read one proverb together every evening and then pray. I cannot say that our Bible study together is highly sophisticated, nor our prayer life together incredibly long or extraordinarily long. In fact, sometimes I have fallen asleep while my wife is praying. One time I fell asleep while I was praying. (laughs) But we pray together and we read the Bible together every evening. It will make all the world a difference. Same with your business or your career. If you are a Christian and your career is going down the drain, could well be that God is calling you back to read the Word and set priorities by the Word. Think of great organizations like Chick-fil-A and their commitment to God's Word and how God has blessed them. It does affect church life as well, of course. That's why we at College Church are reading the whole Bible together Through the year this year. That's why we have as our vision proclaiming the gospel. Because the Bible, the biblical gospel, must be the heart of everything else. That's our vision. When that's the case, we grow in health and we reach the world. It is reliable, sufficient, powerful. Now, of course, I need to do a little bit of this. Because you and I both know that there are many people who say the Bible is not reliable for intellectual reasons. And I know this very well because I did my theological work at Cambridge University, which means I was exposed to many teachers who in no way believed in the reliability of the Bible. Uh, One particular teacher was famous for a rather radical book he had written called The Sea of Faith, which a few slightly naughty students enjoyed referring to as faith at sea. Frankly, this professor didn't believe in God at all. Uh, He uh, just thought the notion of God was useful for social cohesion. I remember one day, having read in my quiet time, the devil sometimes appears as an angel of light. Perhaps you remember that teaching of Paul's in another book. At the uh, college where I studied, there's a beautiful central court where early in the mornings on a fine day, the sun can shine beams of light racing across the well-manicured grass. No one can walk on that grass apart from the professors, the people known as the dons. And as I was strolling to the court, looking into that beautiful um, grass in the center of that, uh, in the center there in a lovely spring morning, 
I noticed that this particular professor was walking across the grass, the light shining brightly behind him. The text, the devil appears as an angel of light, it inevitably came to my mind. What's more, he had that perfectly manicured, all-white, full head of hair. The light dazzled around him, and I kid you not, that morning, I've never seen him before or since doing this, but that morning he was wearing an all-white suit with white shoes. I thought it might be a little bit of a hint from God. Angels of light sometimes appear in beautiful places. One class I had with this man, he surveyed quite brilliantly the course of Western theology and philosophy to come to the conclusion that the only rational position you can possibly adopt these days was his own view. But God does not exist. I noticed that uh, he had left out all the great thinkers who happened to disagree with him. And so I raised my hand and mentioned some of them, Plantinga, Vorderstorff, these great American philosophers who are still alive and much respected. He hummed and hard. Perhaps he blushed under his white hair. I don't know. Now, there are sophisticated intellectual reasons that some people advance for disputing the reliability of the Bible, and believe me, I get there, having been exposed to many of them. I've written a brief entry-level paper on the reliability of the Bible you can find online. There is technical work done on it by scholars like Don Carson or Craig Blomberg or our own Doug Moo or Dan Block. Many others. Uh, Kevin DeYoung has a good recent little popular-level book on it called Taking God at His Word. But important as all that sort of propositional response is, when it comes down to it, I have found Most people's decision about the reliability of the Bible, when exposed to its truth in a way that connects to them, in the end, their decision rests on the lifestyle they choose. And this is the point Paul was making in verse 12. Indeed, he writes, all who live a godly life in Christ Jesus uh, will be persecuted, while evil people and apostles will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. In other words, the number one reason, Paul is saying, why people reject the reliability of the Bible and choose false teaching is not because there's some great secret intellectual problem with the Bible's teaching. Much as there are controversial authors today who want to persuade us they're discovering something new, really, they're just rehashing questions that have been asked and answered many, many times and putting them out in popular form, frankly. You can sell books that way, but you're not coming up with anything new. No, the number one problem that people have with the Bible is not that it's unreliable. Oh, no. But that it is inconvenient. As Mark Twain put it, the problem I have with the Bible is not the things I don't understand, but the things I do understand. Now, it is true that in America today, we are unlikely to be out-and-out persecuted for our faith in the Bible, but we may be sneered at. We may not have to risk our lives, but we may have to risk our jobs or our prestige or the favor of our sophisticated friends. One time at Yale, I discovered that a few of our students were getting a little shaken by some of the stuff coming out of the Divinity School there about the Bible. 
So I did a little bit of digging to find out what was going on. I thought there would be a professor teaching a new, hugely complicated argument that I have to finesse an apologetic to answer. Instead, there was a professor who shall remain nameless, who at the beginning of his class would pick up a Bible and he'd hold it in his hand before the group and ceremonially announce, you Christians, you say the Bible speaks to you, don't you? Isn't that right? And then while he had the attention of the whole, the whole group, he would then forcibly throw the Bible on the floor in the middle of the class with a dramatic, loud thump. Shock silence. And then he'd bellow. Can you hear it? Is it speaking? The Bible does not speak to you. My dear friends, that is not sophisticated intellectual argumentation. (laughs) It is the debating tactic of the kindergarten. Why would anyone with half a brain, let alone an Ivy League professor, do that? Well, I don't know his personal life of that particular teacher, but I have found in many other cases, time and time again, that it comes back to personal moral choice. I could tell you some of those in private, but not in public. Paul, however, followed the Jesus of the Bible, and he was, he says, persecuted for it. He lists three cities that Luke fills in the details for us, Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. Antioch, the religious uh, leaders incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city and stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out. Iconium, Luke says, an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them. So now they're chucking stuff at them kill them. And then he gets to Lystra and they finally think they've got him. They stoned Paul. They strung him up on a tree. And then they dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But he wasn't. The Lord rescued him from it all, Paul says. While the imposters Well, they get the nicely endowed chairs at universities. And they don't have to have awkward conversations around the dinner table with their families about morality or who gets to go in which particular bathroom. And when the Bible says something that might affect their cozy lifestyle, their finances or their career or their reputation or their moral choices, ah, they have a ready-made, sophisticated-sounding, convenient excuse for ignoring the Bible. It is a devastatingly poor choice nonetheless. They go from deceiving, Paul says, to being Deceived. In other words, what starts as their tactic to avoid 
an inconvenient part of the Bible and create a space where their moral choices are allowed to happen and something that they themselves believe. It begins as a tactic, but it ends as a trap for their own soul. Not with us. Now we have the very words of God and we know it. We know it is of greater worth than silver or gold and of a boat. We know it is a lamp to our feet. We don't need other guidance. We have the Bible. It's a light to our path. It's wiser than any human wisdom when we fear the Lord. It is our true spiritual nourishment. It is manna from heaven. What other kind of food spiritually do we need? We live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. It shall never pass away. It is utterly reliable. As one famous set of words puts it, this book is the most valuable thing that this world affords. Here is wisdom. This is the royal law. These are the lively oracles of God. Or as one great Christian leader described it, it has feet and it runs after you. It has hands and it grabs you. Now we can put up with a few hard looks, a few nasty words, a sneer or two, even worse. For these words, these words of eternal life, inspired by God, breathed out by God, that show us Jesus. I love how uh, J.B. Phillips put it. He was one of the first translators to take uh, the old versions, uh, uh, the old English versions of the Bible and put them in modern language. And he wrote this about his experience of the, of the living quality of the Word. It's not just information that you're meeting someone as you read it. He said this, although I did my utmost to preserve an emotional detachment, I found again and again the material under my hands was strangely alive. It spoke to my condition in the most uncanny way. I say uncanny for want of a better word, but it was a very strange experience to sense, not occasionally, but almost continually, the living quality of those rather strangely assorted books. To me, he carried on, it was more remarkable because I had no fundamentalist upbringing. And although as a priest of the Anglican Church, I had a great respect for Holy Scripture. This very close contact of several years of translation produced an effect of inspiration which I have never experienced, even in the remotest degree, in any other work. Well, that's certainly been my experience. Doubt me. I challenge you to read it. Let's pray together.